And welcome to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. I'm the Ryan half of Ryan and Brian, and this is episode number 11. Brian and I are talking with Ryan Burge today, author of the book, The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they are going. In his book, Ryan looks at survey data to give us a better look at the nuns, those who don't declare any specific religious affiliation. Brian and I briefly discussed this data in episode number four, Decline in Church Affiliation. We think this is an important topic for the church to be discussing, so we thought it would be best to go straight to the source and talk to Ryan himself. Uh, This is an entertaining conversation for sure. (laughs) Just a little disclaimer. Because of the nature of the data we discussed in this episode, we do touch on politics a bit. We know that this can be a tense topic these days, and addressing political issues is not the goal of this podcast. However, we want this to be a place to listen and seek to understand all of the world through a biblical lens. And sometimes that includes the mention of politics. But don't worry, our focus is on the data and what that data means for the mission of the church. While we talk all about the book, Brian also unknowingly and hilariously connects us to the classic Ben Siller film, Meet the Parents. As soon as you hear it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, I hope you find it as funny as we did. Anyway, let's jump into this episode with Ryan Birch. All right. Well, welcome back to the Bistro, Brian. Welcome hey, back. How are you doing, Ryan? I am amazing. We've got a guest today, too. Yes, we do. It's a special day. We're welcoming Ryan Burge. Welcome, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Ryan and Brian. Glad to be with you guys. <laughs> yes, Brian, Ryan, doctor. Oh, Dr. gosh. Ryan, 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 Ryan. This is not yeah. going to be confusing at all. So, Nope, not at all. Not at all. We're all in good shape here. Yeah, so we're so excited to have Ryan with us. Ryan has recently written a book. We're going to let him tell us all that information in a second. But Ryan, just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what do you do? And first off, I should just say, you and I went to high school together. Correct. Yes, it's from Salem, Illinois, SCHS. It's a small town in South Central Illinois. Not Southern Illinois. We're not Kentucky. (laughs) (laughs) Don't confuse us. We're not Kentucky. That's, That's actually on this town sign. You know, say we're, we're, not, Illinois. we're not Kentucky, Illinois, not Kentucky. Um, and yeah. we are home of William Jennings Bryan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, great, the great commoner, William Jennings Bryan. Yes, he was. T- you had all this great information. Yeah. Tell us about him, Ryan. He ran for president in 1896, 1900, 1908, lost all three times. He also was secretary of state <laughs> right. under Woodrow Wilson, but then resigned because Woodrow Wilson wanted to get us in World War One, and yep. he thought that was a really bad idea. And then he got in a bunch of trouble because he went to Europe and tried to negotiate a peace treaty when he was a private citizen, right. and you can't do that because that's against the law. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, he also was a pro- the prosecutor for the state of Tennessee during the Scopes monkey trial. Mm. And he actually won the trial, interestingly right. enough. And uh, I think Scopes had to pay like $60 or something as a fine. Uh, and then he died like three weeks later in Tennessee. So that was wow. that was his life. So, Ryan, you have a little bit of information on William James Bryant. <laughs> you got it. I mean, would you write a paper on him? I did. I wrote two papers on him in college. I'm not even joking. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> okay. I was going to say like. If you just pull that out of thin air, like I'm wow. just gonna stop right no, at this point. No, but here, you know, here's a, just a quick aside on William James Bryan. Dude was a literalist, biblical literalist, so six day mm, creationist, right. like as as like fundamentalist right. as you get on uh, uh-huh. theological matters. But was like a Bernie Sanders socialist on really? economics. Stuff. Interesting. Yes, uh, really, yeah. absolutely. He he got famous doing what's called the Cross of Gold speech, which he gave in 1896, where he basically said that that Wall Street is crucifying the farmers in the Midwest mm. on a cross of gold because wow. they're moving away from the gold standard and it ruined debts for farmers in the Midwest. So he was like a populist guy, like an anti-rich right. people thing. He said behind every great fortune is a great crime. Um, hmm. So like wow. he was like, he was like, a, like I'm, it's like Pat Robertson and Bernie Sanders had a baby. <laughs> and, and that is uh, William Jennings Bryant. And, and not to get ahead of well, ourselves, but that's, well, that's, that's one of the things in your book. You, you talk about this idea of crossover between, you know, our political and, and our religious. And it, it, it's not always, it doesn't always line up the way it does right now. You know, it's not always been that way in the past, but. Yeah, yeah. Didn't people mean to think get into you that. have to be one to be the other. No, right, but I mean, you, right. you think people think you have to be one to be the other, but it's like if you, if you yeah. read history at all, you realize that politics yep. and religion were never so congruent as they are today. Today, yeah. You know, like people were everything and nothing. You know, twenty right. even 40, 60 years ago, and now it's like to be a Republican is to be a Christian, and to be a nun is to be a Democrat. But it's like it's right. not always been that way. It's just we don't have a good sense of you know history for where we are right now. Or politics, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well. <laughs> 
we're gonna Jumped be right drinking everyone, yeah. we're gonna be drinking from the fire hose today with Ryan Burge. Hey, you that's good though, man. You know the information and you're coming at us, and that's why that's why we have John yeah. here. So, Ryan, before we get into your book and all the information, tell us a little bit about who you are, how you got here, what's going on. Uh, I am a graduate of SCHS 2000, uh, went to Greenville College, which is Greenville University now, which makes my transcript a nightmare. Trying to be like, this place doesn't exist anymore. I'm like, yeah, well, it did when I yep. was there four yep. years ago or whatever, 15 years ago. 2004, graduated degree in history, political science, minor in religion and philosophy. I uh, went to grad school in 2005 at SIU Carbondale, kind of got squeaked in right before right before semester started. I did everything wrong going to grad school, realizing it now. <laughs> like I had no guidance. No one said like, don't do that. That's that's a dumb idea, which actually worked out for me. But then I advised people to not do what I did, which seems a little hypocritical. But I went for, I was going to go for two years to get a master's degree and then sort of bail and go work in private industry or whatever. Um, but I liked it. And the department was like, hey, we think you're doing a good job. We'll, we'll give you an assistantship to stick around hmm. and finish up your PhD. And I didn't have anything else going on at the time. So I thought, all right, that sounds like fun. Dr. Bird sounds pretty cool. So <laughs> I stayed there until 2011, got a PhD and graduated in June of 2011. Um, June 23rd, you'll never forget the day you defend your dissertation. June 23rd, 2011, <laughs> um, never ever. Graduated in August. And then I took a job at EIU, Eastern Illinois University in 2012. I also am a pastor. I've been uh, serving in the American Baptist churches since I was 20 years old. Three years as a youth pastor, and then I was a pastor for one year at a little church in Marion, Illinois, and now I'm at my current church of Mount Vernon, Illinois. It'll be 15 years in October. I'm the longest-serving pastor in the mm. history of the church, which was wow. established in 1868, so over wow. 150 years of church history. I'm the longest-serving pastor. Before that, the record was 10 years, so I've I've blown past that. Um, <laughs> yes. Let's just say that the there's a plaque in one of the hallways of all the pastors' names, and there's lots of plaques, little <laughs> plaques of like a year, two years. Right. You know what I mean? Like, what? You guys had like five five pastors in three years. What happened? They're like, well, I right. don't, we don't want to talk. We about don't want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Let's just uh, let's move on past that. I'm, uh, I've been married to my wife, Jackie, for uh, 13 years now. We've been together for almost 20 years. We met in high school. We were actually uh, started dating when she was still in high school. I was 19. She was 17. Um, we have two boys. One is nine, and one will be seven at the end of May. Cool. Wow. Busy. Busy. That's my life, man. I don't know how to – busy means the darkness creeps in. So mm -hmm. we want to keep the darkness out as much as possible. So uh, keeping me working is keeping me happy. So that's what I try to do. Good. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the you do statistics like with with what you're doing. Is it statistics? Is that how you just? I don't know. I'm just <laughs> do the, I know. do the math and I make the graphs. Is what <laughs> I tell people. Math and graphs. That's what you do. Uh, yeah. So tell us yeah. a little bit about that work. How you got interested in that? Yeah. So that's actually a funny story. In in political science and social science now, there's really this quantitative qualitative divide. Right. So like qualitative is people who do like focus groups, interviews, like ethnography, things like that. I did that. My very first paper in grad school was a qualitative paper. And then I realized that's a ton of work. I don't want to do all that much work. <laughs> um, the quantitative stuff to me was less work. Like, for instance, my my thesis was 21 pages. My dissertation was 93 pages because it was all quant, right? It was all right. like numbers, statistics, things like that. And people write qualitative dissertations that are like 400 pages. I was right. like, I don't want anything to do with that. So and what's funny was in ma math, I only took – I didn't. I only took three years of math at, in Salem High School. I didn't even take math as a senior because I hated math. And when I went to college, I took one math class my freshman year of, of college. And then I went to a PhD program where I took nine hours of graduate level statistics. So wow. to Ugh. say I was unequipped is a <laughs> bit of an understatement. And I really struggled a lot in grad school. Like, but I realized that like reporters don't call you up and ask about the focus group you did. They hmm. call you up and ask you about survey results, right? right. Like the, the world likes data it's and it's getting, and, and the world is getting more data driven every day. Like in everything we do, we live like, uh, we live a more quantified life today than at any point hmm. in human history. Right. So we have data on sleeping, on working, on walking on, uh, you know, how many times I can look at my students, how long they spend on our online teaching portal. Right. right. So yeah. we have all this data in data science, I saw that as being a, a field where there's so much potential, right, in terms of jobs, both in academia, but also sure. outside of academia. Right. And so I thought I need to I need to skill up. I need to get, you know, increase my skills. So I began teaching myself. This is post graduate school, by the way. I started teaching myself a program called R, which is free and open source uh, statistical software. I used online resources to teach myself how to do that. I started posting graphs on social media, on Twitter, especially and it just started building from there. You mm. know, I had 400 followers to begin with. 
And, and now I have like 8,500 or something like oh that. Goodness, and, you know, and, and people started following me from like major news outlets because of the content that I was putting out that no one else was putting out in the way that I was putting it out. Cause I mean, I probably tweet out, I made 1,450 graphs last year. Hmm. Um, I actually, I actually made a graph of my graphing <laughs> output. <laughs> It's very yeah. meta meta yeah. here. It's like, yeah, dude, yeah. graphs all the way down, right? Link link that to us. We'll put it in the show notes. Your yeah, graph, you should. Graph of graphs. I do it every year. It's like a graph of graphs. And it makes <laughs> me feel good because I look at like, but then I'm like, I made a graph on Christmas. Like, what is wrong with me? Um, <laughs> Did you make a graph of like how many presents opened? No, it was your- about how people celebrate Christmas. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, like people geez. have Christmas trees in their homes. Like what religious traditions don't have Christmas trees? Actually, mm. a lot of Jewish people have Christmas trees, but I think it's hilarious. Interesting. Um, Interesting. But so I'm always like, like looking for a graph angle. And that really is what opened up this whole world to me. I started doing that. And then people started calling at Christianity Today said, hey, will you help us on this article? Will you write an article for us? Religion News Service called and said, would you like to write an article for us, Religion News Service? And then, you know, the way the world works is, at least the way I understand it is, one thing leads to another thing, right? And if you get yourself out there, that exposes you to a new audience. And then people in that audience will see it and then they will expose you to a new audience and on and on and on. And I really, you know, people like social media is the devil and it's real bad. And Twitter's like a lot of my academic friends, like Twitter's a waste of time. For me, I would not have the career I have right now right. without Twitter. So like right. I'm I'm an apologist. I, I think Twitter's awful. Like it does some things really badly. But I think for me personally, it's been a huge reason why I am what I am. So I'm a Twitter apologist or an evangelist in that way that you can actually mm. – a, a kid like me from rural South Central Illinois, <laughs> Ryan. Yeah, yeah, um, South Central. Yes, who did not go to an Ivy League school, did not go to any school of any real reputation nationally, would never have gotten to where I've gotten to 10 or 15 years ago. Like social media is the great leveler, right? Mm. It's the, it democratizes information in a way that nothing else has ever done before. And I am where I am because social media allowed cream to rise, whether it's at Stanford or at Eastern Illinois University, right? That's so I think yeah. that's why I'm a big fan of social media, especially. Cool. All right. So Ryan, tell us, tell us about the book you wrote. Yeah. Tell us, yeah. Tell us about that. So that I go back to the tweet stuff. It actually started mm-hmm. with a tweet. There was a tweet that I, I tweeted in March of 2019 where some new data had come out from this survey that comes out every other year that goes back to 1972. So it's great at tracking trends over a long period of time. And I just basically tracked how different religious groups had changed in size over the last 46 years from 1972 to 2018. And the nuns, the people without any religious affiliation, mm-hmm. had now risen 2% more and were statistically the same size as evangelicals and Catholics for hmm. the first time in in our history, basically. Right. And so I, I tweeted that out. I just said, here's big news. You know, the nuns are the same size now as evangelicals and Catholics. And in the book, the introduction is based on the story of like how that happened in my life. Yeah. Got, got turned up to use a, you know, to use a Will Smith <laughs> Fresh yes. Prince. My life Lip got turned, turned upside up. down. Yes. Um, and, and I went from being like this obscure guy who had never talked to them, talk, spoken to the media ever to CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all calling. The Times of London called me. Wow. Um, you know, the Daily Mail for uh, the the New York Post. Uh, mm. C-SPAN. I was on C-SPAN on Easter morning of 2019. Wow. Uh, wow. Doing an interview, and so like this whole world opened up right, right to me, and I was like, okay, this is fun. Like, and then my Twitter followers started increasing pretty significantly, and I was like, okay, that's cool. And then a year later, a book a book publisher comes along, and goes, hey, we like what you're doing. Do you have any ideas for a book? And I was like, well, the nuns, people want to hear about these nuns, yeah. right? Because like, that's what's, what, what got me the traction in the first place. So let's not try to make people interested in something. Let's just help them see what they're already interested in in a more in-depth and for more full treatment. And that was really what the nuns was, was just kind of giving a handbook for people about the religiously unaffiliated in America. Right. Yeah, it's a, it, and I'll go ahead and say, I, you know, I preach on a, a, a weekly basis at a congregation. I'm a full-time pastor as well. And I found the book very helpful. I think any, you know, we have pastors who listen, uh, interested church members who listen. I think it's a great book to pick up and it just gives you some, a different kind of take on just these statistics. I mean, the problem is when these, when these studies come out, they always do a headline, you know, a intention grabbing headline, but when you begin to dig down into the data, like you do, you're, you're saying some of these things are not exactly the way that the kind of we read them initially. And I found it really helpful. Yeah. That's, that's really the goal of the book is to yeah. say like the thing your pastor told you about the nuns is probably wrong. Right. Um, 
you know, and not and not because they're <laughs> no, it's it's yeah, how right. many of us but, how many of us but, understand how to use quantitative data in, mm-hmm, in a statistically right. meaningful way. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, and, yeah. and pastor, and I I should I should write a book called <laughs> Pastor Stay in Your Lane. You know, like, like figure out what you're good at. But that's right. the thing, like pastors, and like we, we, I even call them pastor stories. People go, does that thing mm-hmm. actually happen? I go, it's a pastor story. What do you think? Right. right. You know, like pro- probably not, not in the way you think it did. You know what I mean? Like there's, right. there's embellishment and like the story changes over time. Statistics are that way too, right? Like pastors pick up this little like deal they read on Barna mm-hmm. or Pew or whatever and sort of pluck it out of context and be like, look at this terrible thing or whatever it is. Right. And so what I wanted to do was say, I'm on uh, the Venn diagram of social scientists and pastors does not overlap that much. It has you in the middle, right? I am in that Venn diagram, right? <laughs> You're so the only ways, one. I am. You're a unicorn. I, I actually am. And I say that and now someone's going to come along and like tweet me like, oh, me too, or whatever. Um, <laughs> the joy of Twitter. <laughs> yeah, get on my Twitter and start yelling at me, which happens uh, way too often now. That's the downside of Twitter, by the way. If you get more right. followers, you get more angry followers. Um, sure. You know, it gets a little bit more toxic. But no, that's the thing. I want to be like a trans a translation service, yeah. basically, between the quantitative data and the pastor thing. And so when I do when I do the quant stuff, I always sort of have a pastor mentality in the back of my head about like, what do pastors need to know about this stuff? Like I I speak fluent both, which right. is very rare. Like most people who do religion and politics are not well-versed like my my co-op one of my most frequent co-authors is an avowed atheist you know mm. it's like so you can't we just don't work on the same wavelength in that in that concern so i what i want to wrote the book for was sort of a handbook for pastors denominational leaders to say here's what the nuns actually look like not the boogeyman that you saw on god's not dead this is not mm-hmm. kevin sorbo philosophy professor nun so the big takeaway and i think this is something that everyone needs to know about the nuns is so six percent of americans are atheists and mm-hmm. 6% of Americans are agnostic, but 21% of Americans are a group called nothing in particular, mm-hmm. which is actually the option on the survey at the bottom says nothing in particular. That's right. the box that over one in five Americans checks now. It's actually, there's as many nothing in particulars as there are evangelicals and Catholics in mm-hmm. America. It's a very large group. It's grown from 14% in 2008 to 21% in 2020. That's a 50% increase in just the last 12 years. Right. I mean, they're the fastest growing religious group. And this is key. Three in five nuns are not atheists and agnostics. Right. They're not. They're nothing in particulars. And that the whole conception, that boogeyman that your pastors put in your head of like the, the atheist, Marxist, communist, whatever guy mm-hmm. who wears the elbow pads and like reads Nietzsche and wants to like convince your kids that God's dead. That is not the norm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The norm is people who read the religion question and shrug. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not avowed atheists. They don't hate God. They don't hate church. They don't hate religion. They just don't think about it that much. They don't okay. consider it that much. And if you think about it that way, it opens up a whole different world of possibilities yeah. for churches, pastors, and denominational leaders to think about how to reach out to this group. Right. A different approach than what what Yeah. And when I read the book when we talked about the the Gallup poll a little bit, as I'd read your book, and that was the thing that stood yeah. out to me was like if it was if this group was represented by five people one's atheist, one's agnostic, and three are nothing in particular. Right. So, I mean, that just, yes, it's, it's uh, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about that. Is it is it someone that has, like, an idea about religion but hasn't put handlebars on it or, or what that is? So, Ryan, as you're doing this as a pastor, was there any data as you're kind of processing this that really surprised you? Yeah. Like, was there something that was just like, whoa, was there something even for you as someone who's in data on a regular basis to kind of go, I, I didn't expect this. Yeah. So a couple, a couple. The the first thing I would say is how different nothing in particular are than atheists or agnostics. They're really like polar opposites in lots of ways demographically. Mm-hmm. And you know the the best way to illustrate that is through the prism of education. Atheists, about forty seven percent of atheists now have a college degree, a four year college degree, and agnostics are right behind, about forty four percent or so. Um, only twenty percent of nothing in particulars have a college degree. They're hmm. literally the least educated group hmm. in America today is nothing in particulars. So they could not be more different, you know, educationally. And education is sort of a proxy for all kinds of other stuff, right? In terms of income, 60% of nothing in particulars make less than $50,000 a year, which means they live in poverty, essentially, hmm. uh, at, the, at the federal poverty guidelines. It's only 40% of atheists. An atheist hmm. is twice as likely to make $100,000 a year as a nothing in particular. I mean, you can go down the list, right? Like they're just so dramatically different from each other. And to think one is the other is just, it's just 
the atheists are they're a very small portion of the population yet they get an outsized role in american discussion right so if you ask republicans what percentage of democrats are atheists they say 33 percent. it's like oh my goodness yeah really yeah so like we even misperceive the other side right and by the way if you ask um democrats what percentage of republicans are evangelicals (laughs) they say half um, really when it's only about 35 percent, right so right. we we overemphasize you know what i mean we overemphasize yeah. what the other side looks like and make them really the the, the caricature caricature not, right yeah, yeah and not the reality mm-hmm. but the other thing about the other thing in particular is what i think really 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 important is so i look at this data called panel data which actually asked the same people the same questions in 2010 12 and 14 so you can actually track movement at the individual level not the aggregate level which means we can track how people move around religion over a four-year period of time for atheist agnostics, almost all of them were still atheist agnostics four years later. I think mm. something like 0.7% of atheists became Christians four mm. years later. So um, I wrote a, I wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition saying, stop trying to argue with atheists, guys. Like It's right. just a tremendous waste of time. I think it's something like intellectual, especially like white dudes who got who got, got like an MDiv or like, I'm going to do apologetics now. Let's go right. yell at Richard Dawkins or whatever. Right. You know, like, what are you doing? Like, what are you, you right. know what I mean? If, if you're not intellectually stimulating, cool, but also understand you're really not convincing anyone. Of, you know, Philip Yancey said, no one becomes a Christian because they lost the argument. Yeah. That's you know, exactly like, right. it's just, apologetics at some level is just, it's not a great use of, of kingdom resources, I think. Um, but nothing in particulars. Four years later, 60% of them are still nothing in particular. Hmm. 20% of them, atheist agnostic. 20% of them are Christians. Okay. So Still one wrong. in five, that's big. Because you think about it, 20, it's 20% of 20%, right? right? Right. That's 4% of America is, 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 are nothing in particular is becoming Christians Believers. over a four-year four period of time. That is almost as large as athe- all the atheists in America, right? So when you talk about, like, if I was a company trying to do market <laughs> research, right? Right. Like, what am I doing here? Like, there, there's your market research yeah. right there. Like, that's the group you need to focus on. Don't worry about everybody else. Focus on that group. You can get a huge. We're talking about millions of Americans. Tens of millions of Americans are in that group. Go after them. They're that's, listening. They're willing. They're receptive. Yeah. yeah, that's very helpful. That's yeah. So wh- while really we may important. think like it's doom and gloom, but when you think about the twenty percent of the twenty percent, and that's four percent, you know, like that's a again, like you said, that's a huge percentage of the population. Like, it's not. It's not lost. You know what I mean? No. Like some people just kind of go, oh, they're, we'll never see them again. They're, it's it's over and it's done with. And see, this is the same data we're talking about in these headlines, but you're just giving us a different way to understand it and, and to think about it. That's that's help, very helpful. So, and that, yeah. By the way, that Gallup stuff, don't oh, don't make too much hay out of that because yeah. they they ask that the question is about membership church in a church synagogue or mosque and listen people don't member they don't I member know. up a church anymore nope. like yes. that's not a thing we, so you're actually sort of it's actually conflating the nuns and the nons together because a lot of non-denominational churches don't yeah. um, have Emphasize membership, membership. yeah, yeah. Right. so like I think it, listen is is religion declining in America yes I mean mm-hmm. unequivocally absolutely yes Americans are less religious today than they were 30 years ago there's no doubt about that is it as bad as the Gallup number makes it out to be? No. no. I think mm-hmm. they actually make it a little bit worse than it actually is. I think it's probably closer to 55% if you really, you know, if you, but the problem is they asked that question in the 1930s to begin with when membership was a bigger deal. Big deal. Right? It was a yes. huge deal. Yeah. And the problem is you can't change the way you ask a question because then you lose comparability, right. you know, to old data. So they have to ask the question the same way. So you really, you're seeing an artifact of something that a decision they made literally 80 years ago is causing us consternation today. Right. Hmm. Bet it was great timing for your book. <laughs> oh my gosh. That book, the book was doing okay. Like it was, you know, I was doing fine. And all of a sudden that, that comes out and all of a sudden the Washington post calls me. And all of a sudden I look on Amazon and my rank goes from like 12,000 to like 3000. I'm like, Ooh, you know, like, thank you Gallup. Like, I don't know how you right. did this or why, but I'm glad you did. And it's actually kind of given like a nice second win. Uh, for book yeah. sales and interest and stuff. So I'm yeah, all, you've I'm got all some ran- or some randos from high school calling you to be on podcasts. <laughs> hey, so- man, I've gotten a lot of randos from my past. Being like, I saw you on 538, dude. It's great. I'm like, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. Cool. yeah. So talk to us about the reaction to your book. Yeah. You know, you said like you've got more Twitter followers, but a lot of the hate. But talk to me just like what's been the reaction to this data to, you know, the Gallup was really maybe catastrophizing s- yeah. some things, but like what? Talk to us about what's the reaction been to your to your book. I've realized that every pastor in America wants to wants to make their church huge. <laughs> you know, like oh, there's a gosh, reason that yeah. church growth is an industry. Right. 
a right. billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollar probably industry. Everyone's asking the question, you know, what can we do to bring back the nuns? And honestly, like I actively avoided that question in the book because there's not a single simple, everyone wants like, here's a five point plan to bring the nuns back. Mm. It's not that simple, right? Like right. part of my job is to say, and I even say this in the book, here's what the world actually looks like. Not the way you wish it were or hope it could be, but the way it actually exists. And, right. you know, it's like, it's from a lot of me, it's like, here, I'm going to put this all on a platter and hand it to you, slide it across the table and say, okay, now you figure out what to do with it. Now, that's not to say that I don't have some ideas, but it's, there's not a silver bullet. There's not a magic right. word incantation you can say to bring these nuns back. But at the same time, I would say the, the, res, the response has been overwhelmingly positive from everybody, even the nuns. I, I have hmm. atheist friends who read the book and go, I like those first four chapters, but the fifth one, that's when I put like the pastor hat on a little bit in the fifth right. chapter. They're like, I didn't like that chapter at all because you're trying to, you know, trying to convince me to become a Christian or whatever. Right. That, that's the problem in trying to, that Venn diagram we talked about, you can't do both and not make one side unhappy at some, at some right. points. Right. Let, so let me ask you this. When you mentioned that, I, I was going to ask the nuns, the nuns that have responded, how, like, what kind of things are you hearing? And, and let me preface this by saying, I really appreciate in the book that you point out, hey, statistics are numbers, but each of these numbers represents an individual mm-hmm. and, and everybody's story is different. And, and really that's what we, you know, as believers, that's what we're about. We're about connecting with people on, on an individual basis and, and, you know, relating and connection and, so anyway, what what have been the response of some of the nuns that you've that have responded to your book? Would you say? You know, it's funny. They actually really like me. Like I have a okay. nice following. I'm like the American atheist asked me to come like do webinars for them and stuff. <laughs> I had a week. This is how wild my life is. I had a week like probably six months ago where I did Christian Broadcasting Network did a live interview <laughs> on their show like on a yes. Tuesday, right? And then on yeah. a Thursday, I was on the Freedom from Religion podcast. Wow. Uh, on, yeah. on, on Thursday talking about like the irreligious in America. So it's, it's like, but I love that though, because it's like yeah. in a world where everyone feels so partisan and so like in the yes. tank for this side or that side, I want to do my best to be sort of a neutral referee, like an arbiter of just saying like, and, and I actually was talking to a reporter about that two days ago. There's so few people who do my job the way I do it because everyone seems to have an angle and was trying to like make money or, you know, get donations or whatever. Right. I mean, obviously, I'm trying to sell books, but my my whole shtick as as a, a platform is, I'm just giving you the data like as neutrally as I possibly can give it to you. There's a value in that in a society mm. where everyone is all over the place, right? And it seems like you can't trust anybody anymore with anything. Right. I hope to be one of the few people in American society who go, well, what is what does Ryan think? Like, what is the what is what is his take on this? Because I think it would be a neutral, objective, empirically based take, no matter what it is. Mm, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's like, it's almost like they're saying, well, you get us, you, you understand where we're coming from. You're not trying to caricature us or paint us into a corner or something like that. And so that's, that, that. That, there was no one doing this work from their side, right. from the, the side of the nuns. Like no one, everyone wants me to write about them. That's what I realized. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there, there's a couple of communities on Twitter that like, won't, every time I post a graph, they're like, what about, what about Mormons? I swear to you, mm-hmm. it's like inevitable. Like I have a huge Mormon following and they're like, what about Mormons? Like everything's like everyone wants it to be about them, right? And what what about Orthodox Christians or what about what about the nuns, right? right? Everyone wants wants something to be written about them, and hopefully, I'm one of the few people who can do that. And it's so interesting because those communities are desperate to learn about themselves, yeah, right. That's good. They really want to understand themselves yeah. in a meaningful way, and there's so few people doing what I'm doing that. I end up having to be like this encyclopedia for everybody, like helping them explain themselves, which I love, but it's also sort of a, it's a burden because you feel like I'm always constantly thinking, am I writing too much about this and not right. enough about them? Who am I ignoring? Who am I leaving out? And I know I'm leaving people out, um, but unfortunately I can't do everything. I can't be everything to everybody. So, right. You're just trying to hold up a mirror a little bit, you know, like everybody's asking for the mirror. Let me see the full length mirror. So right. I know what's really going on with me. I'm going to use that in my next book, Ryan. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Everyone's a mirror. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's, that's really like my second, my, my, my book that's I'm writing right now is called mm-hmm. 20 myths about religion and politics hmm. in America. And it's 10 political myths and 10 religion myths. Wow. And I'm really trying my best to cover as much ground as I can but the introduction, the, the first sentence of the introduction is we can't even agree on the facts anymore. Right, right. You know, like that is where we've gotten to in America is like 80% of Republicans believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Right, right. I mean, like it's not political for me to say that's a lie. <laughs> like you believe right. in a lie. <laughs> like at some point we have to say like truth is truth and lies are lies. And lies don't become truth because you say them a bunch. 
yeah. or, or a bunch a of people saying, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. that's the thing is I hope, and I, and I, and in the book, I try to make this case in the beginning saying like the only thing that moves us forward as a country, as a society is for us to embrace an empirical worldview, which mm-hmm. is saying, I don't care, you know, what the, the facts are the facts, and we can't argue the facts. We have to argue the interpretation of what those mean. But when we start attacking the facts, we literally have crumbled the foundation of American political discourse right. and American religious discourse. And that is a really scary road to go down. Okay. So give us a, can you give us an example? One of those myths? I mean, you talked oh, yeah, about sure. some, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just give us a whole so, book if you yeah, would. Um, so uh, evangelicalism is in decline. That's actually a myth. Okay. There's actually no evidence of that. Um, if you look at the data from 1972 to 2018, they're actually up two or three percent from 1972. Right. We um, saw that that one graph you gave, and you made the point that there could have been a period of aberration in there, but mm-hmm. overall, you've got a little bit of an increase. Yeah. And I actually do that in more depth in the book. I show Good. like I truncate the axis at like 1972 versus 1993. Yeah. If 1993, it's downward, but from mm-hmm. 1972, it's actually upward, oh, right? So, yeah. and the share of Americans who self-identify as evangelical is actually the same size as it was 12 years ago. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Wow. So okay. there's there's been no evidence of decline. Um, a, a political one is um, that Donald Trump was not the favorite of white evangelicals right. in the primary. Right. That's a, like that's a dead wrong myth. Hmm. He was preferred by white evangelicals of every church attendance level except those who attended more than once a week. Um, so hmm. weekly attenders preferred him over Cruz. Um, and even amongst the weekly attenders, which by the way, are only 8% of white evangelicals attend more than once a week. He actually only lost to Cruz by eight points. Well, um, hang, hang on a second. Go, go back and you said church attenders who attend more than once a week. Uh, that's the only group that Cruz did better than Trump was with week was white evangelicals more than church more than once a week. Yes. <laughs> so people that more than once a week wanted Ted Cruz. Yes. Wow. Less than once a week. Everybody wanted else Trump. wanted Donald Trump. And Donald Trump won by double digits in every other attendance category. Right. And Cruz only beat Trump by eight points amongst weekly one. plus attenders. Mm, interesting. So like that whole thing, that whole is, is manufactured by a lot of Christians saying, oh, but we we didn't really like Trump. We just wanted to, we, 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 we coalesced around him when he became the consensus nominee. Right. That is not true. They liked him from the from jump, the beginning, from uh, the very beginning. And then another myth is that white evangelicals vote for Republicans because of abortion. Like that's their their single issue voters. Actually, they care just as much about immigration as they do about mm. abortion. Interesting. Um, so you know a lot of a lot of things that people just assume to be true, and it's going to really make a lot of people mad because I've actually said this to people like white evangelicals don't care about abortion as much as you think they do. And they're like, no, they really, really do. Uh, you know, like the data just doesn't, doesn't right. say that, you know, like, so let's, and, and so like I said, there's, there's 10 primarily religious, like one is like radical conversion is rare and does not mm, actually happen yeah. amongst adults. Um, you know, cause I have data that shows that like only 25% of people who say they're born again, become born, born again, actually attend church more after they become born again, mm. 55% attend the same amount and like t- 20% attend less. Yeah. After they become born again. You, you know what I love about this? I, Ryan and I have talked about worldview some, and, and that's one of the things that, that I think is incredible is, is you have to look at behavior. People's stated beliefs, one thing, but sometimes our behaviors don't, well, I'd say often our behaviors don't necessarily line up with our beliefs. So you have to look at how people are acting in order to really understand their worldview in a, in a fuller way, I would say. But, that's and that's really the hard thing about religion, though. It's multifaceted, right? Sure. So there's, there's a belief component. There's a belonging yeah. component, like just yep. saying you're evangelical. But then there's the behavior component, which is which is like church attendance is just the way we talk about behavior right. when it comes to religion, because that's like the most you know prevalent one. Forty uh, percent of Americans never attend church, but only you know twenty five percent of Americans have no religious affiliation. But only ten percent of Americans embrace an atheist or agnostic worldview. So right. there's. They're dramatically different groups. They don't sit. On, they don't nest on top of each other perfectly. Some people belong but don't behave, and this might blow a lot of people's mm. minds. But a lot, so there's some people in America who go to church every week and don't believe in God at all because they like that. They like that social dimension of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. know, there's the, the more you, the social science is great because it makes you think about things in a different perspective from a different worldview than you were raised in. And growing, growing right. up evangelical. That's one worldview, not the only worldview that exists. And social science helps take you out of that and sort of have like a bird's eye view of what's going on. Cool. Yeah, it's it's. I'm going to go back to my mirror because I want to be in this book. <laughs> it's like, you know, holding up a real mirror in front of you, not a funhouse mirror or in a world where you don't have any mirrors at all. You're just like, right. oh, this is perfect on me, but you have no way to actually see what's happening. Right. So when did you start writing the book? The first book or the second book? The, the, uh, your, the first book, The Nuns. Uh, I started in October of 2019, and I delivered the final draft by um, May of 2020 was okay. when the final okay. draft was due. 
This book, I signed the contract actually on the second week of March, and I've written 31,000 words. Um, about 12 myths are done, and it's due to be delivered in August for a March cool. 2022 publication date. Cool. Yeah. So is there anything, you know, there's been a little bit of time, not a whole lot. I mean, you've between when you uh, submitted the nuns to, to today, is there anything like the reaction? Is there anything you wish you'd included or stated a little differently? Like, or has, has it been, you know, 2020 kind of changed things a little bit yeah. as well. So um, is there something for you as you reflect on yeah. what's in there and what's not in there? You know, funny, you, funny you mentioned that. I was talking to my editor two days ago and she was like, you want to do a revise and expanded of the nuns in like three or four years, you know, like just to take the content and update it using like the most recent data. Right. And maybe adding like 25, 30 pages of new analysis and just kind of rewriting the other sections to reflect the changes that have happened, let's say between 2018 and 2022 or something like that. And I'm I'm all I'm all I'm here for it. Cause that's right. first off, it's easy to do that. It doesn't take a ton of work on my end. But secondly, I think there are things that I left out. And actually I'm gonna pick one up in the the miss book, which is the idea. Well, two things. One is that there's this whole idea that when people age, they become more religious. Like I had my buddy go, they cram for the final, dude. <laughs> um, that's what a, that's what a buddy said to me the other day. Wow. And I was like, that's not actually true, though. Um, hmm. People are actually becoming less religious as they age now, and it's actually hmm. hitting every age group. People actually, it's true from every age group born after 1950. So hmm. basically, almost everyone today is becoming less religious as they age. But the other thing I missed in the book that I'm going to try to pick up in the miss book is that a lot of what's happening in America is just generational replacement. It's not a lot of like dramatic shifts in when people move into adulthood, they don't dramatically shift their religiosity through their life course. Like once you hit like 20 years old, you basically kind of are what you are when you're 60 years old in terms of religion. So the reason that religion's declining in America is because old people are dying who are really religious. Right. And are being replaced by young people who are a lot less religious moving into adulthood a lot less religious. So back in the day, like people born in the fit in the 1950s, when they were 18 years old, only about 10 or 12% of them were nuns hmm. at 18. Right. Today, it's about 33% of people move into adulthood as nuns, right? So this whole idea of like, we're seeing, and I didn't talk about this in the book a lot, but I should have talked about it more. We're seeing second and third generation nun families, which hmm. we've never seen before, which means that the nuns become a tradition, right? Right. Like, like Baptist or Methodist or Catholic. And when it becomes a tradition, it, it's based more on retention than it is on conversion. And that makes their numbers more stable over a long period of time. And we're moving into that era now. And I'm going to do that in more depth in the next book. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say the nuns like are becoming generational, is it part of that atheist agnostics? It's that three represented by three there, or is it atheists and agnostics are becoming, are they becoming generational as well? They are. For instance, in the 1970s, only about a third of people raised as a nun stayed a nun as an adult. So two-thirds of them went back to a religious tradition. Today, it's about 65% of people raised nuns stay nuns. Hmm. So, you know, and which is, by the way, is actually higher than a lot of Christian groups. Um, evangelical retention is only about 70% right now. So, hmm. like, we're getting to that same level of, like, codification and institutionalization of, you know, the nuns as an institution not just a new phenomenon, which means that the numbers to bring them back is going to be even harder because you have to convince people who are, you know, they've been nuns their entire lives to be to stay nuns. Or to, to go back to religion, I mean, you know. Right, right. I was just going to make a smart like comment, say, you know, so, so one day we'll not be celebrating Christmas, but Festivus, right? So that's Probably, yeah. Yes. I mean, realistically, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to air my grievances now for the year. So. Yeah, so uh, Ryan, you're a pastor. So what is the main takeaway, you know, and you talk about e evangelical and mainline Protestant church, like th th this is covering a wide swath of different kinds of churches, you know, people that are disaffiliating. How do people in the church sh should, how should they respond? I mean, we're just asking your perspective here as a pastor, as a pastor. how should they, yeah. yes. as a pastor, how should they respond to this information? <sighs> That's a good question. I think the one thing is they need to start thinking about church as a social activity as much or more so than a religious activity that, you know, at, at some level church is, we forget, we focus so much on the vertical, we forget the horizontal. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, and I've been, this is what I've been counseling a lot of churches. And I think this is something that, that, that I think pastors need to think about is as we move into a post COVID world and things are op reopening now, actually, you know, officially, right. People are looking for connection. They're looking for community. They're looking for socialization. So churches should start creating that space 
to, mm-hmm. to make that happen. So things like barbecues, you know, horseshoe tournaments, circuses, you know, like just make events and do them outside, by the way, just in case people have, you know, issues with COVID and all that kind of right. stuff, you know, make it easy for them to come and, and no, and, and, and don't, don't hand out any tracks and don't do like a praise and worship time and don't have like a evangelist come yell at them and tell them they're going to hell. You know, like just, just chill on that at the beginning, right? Most people come to, come to church for the wrong reasons and stay for the right reasons. Right. Hmm. So give them a lot of wrong reasons to come and free food's a really good wrong reason. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like just, just, right. just create connections with people. And I think people are actually more interested now in connection than they've been in a long time because they've gone through this period of reflection over the last 15 months right. for a lot of them about their, their self-evaluate. Am I not religious enough? Do I need to get closer to God? Do I need to go back to church? I think a lot of people are sort of, they're looking for a, a halfway meeting. You know what I mean? They want, they mm-hmm. want to see that hand coming from the other side to, to meet them where they are. And I think that the church has got so focused on, you know, like butts and seats and baptisms and, you know, all that stuff that they forgot that at the end of the day, people just need community. It's a relationship. They just need relationships Mm -hmm. and help them build relationships that are, that are no strings attached, that there's Mm -hmm. no ulterior motive. Just let people be people together in community. And the religion piece will obviously naturally flow from that, I think. If I can just speak to that, I mean, we, I have a rural congregation that I serve and, and, you know, relatively small, about a hundred, hundred people or so. And every Sunday after church, we have a fellowship time and it's very informal. We just all kind of get together, have coffee, that kind of thing. Well, we haven't been able to do that for the past year and year and a half or so. We're, we're starting to talk about how are we going to make that happen again? And, and people have said, that's what they miss. I miss that fellowship time so much. It's not, you know, you can, you can get a sermon on online, or you can, you know, like you said, listen to praise music, all that kind of stuff, but it's that connection, that relationship that people are really craving. I, I think that's a great, great point you make there. Yep. And, and that's and I, not what I grew up with though. You know, it was right, all about sure. invitational time. And <laughs> I just wrote a chapter where we talked about my church. I grew up in first Baptist of Salem, Southern Baptist church where we, I don't think there's nine verses of I surrender all, but we found nine in that church <laughs> somehow. You better surrender it. You better surrender son. all of it, just as I am right now, up front, right. please. Because right. what the pastor would do is he goes, well, unless no, someone comes up front, we're not going to we're going to sing another one. You know what I right. mean? Like we're going to sing another one until someone comes up front because we were so interested on, you know, that was the whole emphasis. And it's like you you forget the fact that like a lot of people just want friends. They just want right. to hang out, like just create. And I think that's the thing that churches should do too, is create space after the worship service mm-hmm. and before the worship service to just hang out in the pews and talk to each other. You know, that's where the community is built. And that's yeah. where actually I think the edification happens a lot is, yep. is not from the pulpit. And by the way, just to turn it political just for a second, most churches <laughs> are not political from the pulpit. They're political from the pews. Pews. It's, yeah. it's the it's the before time and the after time of church. It comes from the conversation at the laity level, not at the pastoral level. Where mm-hmm. the, that's actually one of the myths in the book. I'm going to tackle. By the way, is is yeah. the idea that like people think that pastors are making parishioners conservatives or liberals or whatever? No, no, no. It's the other parishioners that are doing that. They're making mm-hmm. each other conservative or liberal. So, but that's good. That's okay. You know, like mm-hmm. let's let that happen. Let's let people talk. Like I think churches, especially churches who have like, let's say church first and then Sunday school afterwards or Sunday school first, you know, you got to think about give a lot of time between Sunday school and church. That way people want to sit and talk in the hallway for 20 minutes between Sunday school and church. They, they can, they don't feel like they're rushed into going back to church, right? Like let them have time to socialize. That's something to think about going forward is maybe make the worship service a little bit shorter and make the socialization period a bit longer. I think people would actually enjoy that quite a bit. I think you're right. I yeah. think that's a great point. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thinking about that, you know, I went to a different church. We, I went to Evergreen in Salem. Yes. And one of the things that I remember very vividly as growing up is we had Wednesday night meals. Mm-hmm. It was like you came home and we had a meal together. And I remember sitting across from a parent of my friends or other adults and stuff. And like, I just have a really fond memory of that. And we're like, we put all the Christmas decorations up all together as a church. And there was no service. There was no singing. It was just all of us together. We ate a lot of food. Everybody, you know, that was when potlucks and the health department wasn't cracking down on everybody <laughs> for everything. But, you know, we just got together and we ate. And like, I had connections with people that were older than me and adults and that cared about me. And so, yeah, yeah it was that was a huge part for me. And that's one thing that that I mourn you know, that loss, that loss of experience, even for my children, because it was such a huge part for me growing up as well. So point. yeah, I think community is a, is a huge thing. And my, you know, my church is all old people, like just to be blunt, it's just a bunch of old people. So my kids have like 10 sets of grandparents. 
Mm. You know, mm. because like they all adopted my kids because they're not right. really some of the only kids in the church. And like when we have meals and stuff, it's like they're just surrounded by love and people who care about them and they get presents from everybody that's for their cool. birthdays. Yeah. You know, so like that, I think that's what a lot of young, like the younger generation misses like that whole, they don't see that part. Like that's the, right. that's the beauty of re- religion for me is it's that part that I feel so loved and cared for. And if I got sick, there'd be a bunch of old ladies dropping pot, you know, casserole dishes off on my front step right. tomorrow to take care of me. And we live in a, in a very disjointed, disaffected, yep. disconnected society. And the church is one of the very few institutions that still exists, you know, across the country that, that creates those connections with each other. And right. by losing that, we lose so much. And I think, you know, we're seeing so much depression and suicide and deaths of despair has risen mm. dramatically in the last, you know, couple of years. The church was one of the ways to help tamp down on that stuff. And by losing right. that, we're, we, I think we may actually made the world is a little bit more awful without religion in it. Mm. And I know mm. that's a controversial statement for some people, but I think that's objectively true if you look at the data. Um, and people forget that. They think religion's only, they only think about all the bad stuff it does because right. the media obviously picks up on Creflo Dollar wants a new jet and Joe Lostein lives <laughs> in a mansion and right. all those things. They don't cover the fact that churches like mine feed 250 kids a brown bag of food every weekend. You know, like that, right. make that, that, and that's happening literally tens of thousands of times across America every single day. Right. And it never is covered by the media. So yeah. they only hear the bad stories, not the good things. And churches do a lot of good things. Yeah. Think about the effects of that. Like you said, multiply. That's, that's fantastic. That's really cool. Yeah. So Ryan, I got a question for you here. If, if someone doesn't read your book, yeah. which, which would be a horrible mistake. <laughs> am I right? A, a egregious mistake without a doubt. Yes. <laughs> An egregious mistake that you will regret you know, where they're trying to catch yeah. up at the end of their life, you know. Um, so what's one thing that if they didn't read your book, what was one thing that you would want someone to know about your book? What's one thing that that you would want them to walk away with kind of going, this is something you need to know going ahead? What would you want them to know? That, that nothing in particular is are this huge group that you never heard about, and they're right. so incredibly important, and they're so malleable and and receptive to, to all kinds of things, and that we need to be thinking about them in more, not just religiously by the way but i think politically and culturally these people are being left behind and left out and i think mm. a lot of they're, they're getting a lot of bad outcomes you know like the people who got left behind by globalization i talk about that at the end of the book globalization right. there's a lot of parallels between these two like the like a lot of people that ryan and i grew you know like grew up with mm. wanted to live the same life their parents did which was go to high school graduate and then go yeah. work at the factory world color or nal or whatever it is yeah. and you know those jobs used to pay a yeah. uh, middle-class wage yeah. and now they pay half a middle-class wage right they wanted the life that doesn't exist anymore and now they're so far along in life they can't retool and reskill and re-educate themselves so they're kind of victims of globalization i think that nothing in particular is sort of victims of secularization and globalization at the same mm. time because now they don't have any they don't have a job that keeps them stable but they also don't have a society or you know institutions that help keep them stable at the mm. same time and they're sort of floating in social cultural religious space in ways that are, I think, really negative for them, you know, in terms of economics, spirituality, psychologically. These people need help, and the church is actually really well-equipped to reach out to them. And they're not anti-church, like we talked right. about. They're not – they're amenable to listening to a church. It's just churches need to find these people because, honestly, they're hard to find. You right. know, they don't – you know, there's no nothing in particular group on Facebook to go look at right now. That's great. Um, so yeah. the churches need to think about those people, find ways, find the people who are easily overlooked, Right. Um, those are the kind of people who would be the most receptive and I think would benefit the most, both themselves personally and the church would also benefit from having them as part of the community. Yeah, that sounds I love that. That's really good. I think I think you should call the the nothing in particular is the nips. I actually did call I have a, I have a folder. I have a folder on my desktop called <laughs> nips, and my wife looked at it and goes, What is this, Ryan? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't even think of that. Okay. That was, well, yeah, yep. I was, I was, say, I was Brian, I, come on. Brian, I, you, I retract you that. Up, buddy, and I had to go. No, I mean, we've all got them. We've all got them. All, so. I have nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. That's I did funny. not know we were going there That's with this funny. podcast, but it is amazing. That That is a classic meow, film. Meow, come on, meow, guys. You know, meow, meow. Yeah. yeah, man. Robert oh, De Niro is great in that movie. Jack Tuck tie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forgot about yes. that. What a classic. So, yeah. That is a great meet the parents. All right. Well, Ryan, that this note. has been. <laughs> You're welcome. You guys, you guys invited me on. This is what you get. Yeah, that's yeah, good. On Brian's, it's, it's been great. Uh, it's, we've really appreciated it. It's yes, been great. Absolutely. So, Ryan, how can someone find out more about you, where to get the book, what's going on with you? Because they obviously need to follow you. 
yeah and buy your book and all that stuff so tell us about it yep uh you can find me at ryan burge r-y-a-n-b-u-r-g-e on twitter that's really the center of my online presence everything i do is sort of kind of hubs around what i do on twitter uh ryanburge.net is my website it has all my academic papers um stuff about the nuns um speaking things i've done my email address is you can find it it's really easily findable i mean you google my name and you'll find my email address the book the nuns is available from amazon.com or any fine bookseller uh the nuns where they came from who they are where they're going from fortress press and i have a new book like we just talked about 20 myths about religion and politics in america it's coming out in march of 2022 uh if you want to reach out you, there's many ways to reach out. I'd love to get questions. I love Sounds to help good. people. So, you know, however I can be of service to you, I'm happy to do it. We, we really appreciate, appreciate it, really, really appreciate you coming on. It's been very, very entertaining and informative. So, yeah. And I appreciate your Twitter feed because you're always putting out new graphs, man. I make graphs. Um, someone laughed at me. He goes, dude, your Twitter bio is like so perfect. It says, I make graphs about religion because that's exactly mm. what I do. No fluff, yeah. no commentary. Just graph, Graphs. graph, graph. I got a brand. Yes. I know what brand is. They don't want to hear how I feel about like minimum wage or whatever. No one cares about right. that. Um, they want to see graphs about religion, and I give people what they want. Cool. Yeah. And we want that graph about graphs. Yeah, definitely. Yo, dog, I put a graph in your graphs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks again so much, Thank Ryan. you, Thanks, Brian. Ryan. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. We hope you enjoyed it, and it gave you plenty of things to think about. Uh, I know it did for me. To go along with this episode, we are also going to be doing a giveaway. You can enter to win a copy of Ryan's book, The Nuns, starting tomorrow, May 28th. So head over to Facebook tomorrow, that's Friday, for all of those details. Coming up on Tuesday, Brian and I are jumping back into scripture and talking a bit more about the idea of the temple through the whole book of John. If you found our John 14 episode interesting, you won't want to miss this whole series of upcoming episodes. In the meantime, you can find show notes, links, and more for this episode and others at thebiblebistro.com. You can also find us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Bible Bistro. And as always, you can subscribe to us on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it helpful, would you also please give us a review with Apple Podcasts? The more positive reviews we receive, the more likely others will be able to find and listen to this content. I think that's about it for today. We hope you enjoyed it, and we will talk to you next Tuesday.